Isn't it strange how the brain will try to see faces in motionless objects? In this light, as the sun fades below the horizon and the dark of night takes hold once more, the house almost seems as if it has a face of its own. An evil face, with small black eyes and a crooked grin of toothy windows, almost as if the house was self-aware, that it knew what horrors had been committed within its walls and reveled in them. A house with a demonic presence, and a legacy of blood and nightmares. It's not hard to see why people are so terrified of the House of the Amityville Horrors. Welcome once again, dearest and chosen listeners, to Channel FM's fifth broadcast. I am Thomas, slime-coated creature from the deep, and your many-tendrilled host. It's hard to believe that it's been over a month now since we started. Four peculiar mysteries of the macabre, investigated and chosen by yours truly for a tale that is fantastic and frightening, but also informative and real. Before we go on to today's subject, I realise that I forgot to give the special shout-out for our last week's broadcast. Given that this is the fifth episode, and that we've been going on for over a month now, I want to give a special shout-out to everyone who listens to this ruined, ramshackle, and broken-down radio station. Whether you listen to this on the way to work to make a commute more entertaining, or late at night when the moon is high and you've only the madness of your own thoughts for company, whether you download, stream, or listen on air, you have our special shout-out and my thanks. This week's Matter of Madness is one half of a two-part broadcast. It's inspired countless stories, movies, games, and other media productions. It's a fascinatingly dark and truly unnerving place, one of the most haunted, infamous, and controversial buildings in North America. One of ghosts, devils, possessions, incomprehensible apparitions, and bloody mass murder. I am speaking of 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, the house of the Amityville Horror. It's said that great tragedy has touched everyone who's ever lived in the house, but for now we'll focus mostly on two groups, the DeFeo family and the Lutz family. For the first, Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family after being plagued by ghosts and demons. The Lutzes moved in shortly after the murders, and reported enough paranormal activity to fill a book with. They fled the house in terror, taking only the clothes upon their backs with them. I fully admit that the topic is a controversial one. Many people have investigated the paranormal activity in the house over the years, from Catholic priests to vampirologists, and even the famous paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. If you don't know them from their literature and paranormal work, you may know their story as the main characters of the successful Conjuring movie franchise. As to the validity of the claims, it's usually a flip of the coin as to whether people believe it or not. But if I've sufficiently whet your appetite, dear listener, then let me indulge your morbid curiosity with this story of a true American horror. The DeFeos were a family of seven that originally came from Brooklyn, New York. Louise, the mother, owned a car dealership, and husband Ronald was its manager. Their children were Allison, Dawn, Mark, John, and of course, Ronald Jr., nicknamed Butch by the stepfather. 
They were, at first appearance, a family like any other. When they bought the house in June 1965, they were so thrilled that they named their new home High Hopes. But, soon enough, the illusion of a perfect family faded, revealing the tortured and terrible relationships behind it. Ronald Sr. was a gross and abusive man. He would beat and berate his family within the confines of his home just about whenever the mood took him. His favoured target was his wife, but a close second was his soon-to-be infamous stepson, Ronald Jr. Jr. was ostracised at school because of it. His classmates had seen his stepfather fly into a mad rage and beat both Louise and Jr. black and blue. His friends refused to visit the home, and they avoided Ronald Sr. at all costs. As it unfortunately so often does, the abuse bled into his time at school, and Junior was bullied and beaten by his classmates for this, and his overweight stature. Years passed, and the evils of home and school were forging Ronald Junior into the only sort of man he knew. As Junior became taller and older, his temper grew with him. Soon enough, he and his father were screaming at one another daily, eventually escalating into violence. Knowing that beatings would no longer stop his stepson, the stepfather sent him to a psychiatrist. When that too failed, the family resorted to simply indulging him, buying Junior everything and anything he might want, but this did not soothe his rage. Even his classmates were not safe from his wrath. Junior was quick to fight, steal, and generally make life unpleasant for his teachers and fellow schoolmates. So much so that he was expelled when he was only 17 years old. Now a delinquent and school dropout, his behaviour only worsened as he took to drink and drugs, taking both LSD and heroin that only exacerbated things further. While out drinking at bars, with what little friends he had, Junior would throw chairs and become violent with both female bartenders and his girlfriend, Sherry. Bullied at home and school, with no safe place in sight, failed by humanity at every turn until violence is all he knew, it's only obvious, in hindsight, where Ronald Jr.'s path would lead him. Time passes, and now, on November 13th of 1974, Junior is 23 years old and working for his father while on probation. He's left work early for some reason, and has met with his girlfriend Sherry and a friend of theirs, Bobby. The two inquire as to why Junior is with them and not working at the family's car dealership, but Junior gives them a rather peculiar answer, and the first red flag. He's not heard from his family all day. He tells them that the dealership never opened that day, that the cars are still locked within the garage, and no one is answering their phones. Later, at roughly 6pm in the local bar, Junior speaks to his friends once more of his missing family, even making an effort to phone them in front of everyone there, but of course, nobody picks up. Seemingly angered by the day's events, he stands out of his barstool and states loudly that he's going to go home, break in through a window, and find out what exactly is going on. He then leaves to go do just that. Half an hour later, he bursts back into the bar, full of apparent fear and emotion, exclaiming, You gotta help me! I think my family's been shot! A small group of people left the bar with Junior and made their way quickly to the DeFeo home. One of the group, a friend named Joe, phoned the police while the rest searched the house. What they found was a shocking and blood-chilling scene, and the beginning of the Amityville Horror. All six of the family had been shot dead in their beds, their bodies face down on the mattress. 
They were still wearing their nightclothes and showed no sign of being disturbed or moved, as if they'd all been peacefully asleep when they were murdered. The mother and father had each been shot twice, while the children had only been shot a single time. Junior's youngest siblings were Mark and John, aged only 12 and 9 when they were killed. Neighbours gathered outside the horrific event, as people often do, to watch and gossip as the police carried out their examinations. The medical examiners concluded that they had each been shot at around 3am that morning with .35 caliber rounds, and that the murder weapon had been a lever-action Marlin rifle. Saddeningly, examiners concluded that Louise and her daughter Allison were actually both awake at the time of their deaths. Their positions, each slightly turned with heads looking towards the door of their own bedrooms, indicated that they might have watched their killer as it happened. Even worse, it was not a quick death for Louise. It may have been almost 10 minutes before she finally passed away from her injuries. Here is where the murders get eerie and strange. All six of the victims were face down in their beds and killed without a struggle. This we know, but what we don't know is why. The investigators that discovered the rifle found that it had not been fitted with a silencer, and there was no evidence of sedatives found in the DeFeo family's systems. The examiner that performed the autopsy reported, We did extensive toxicology, not only on the blood and urine, but on all the organs that we removed, and it turned up zero. There wasn't anything in their body. None of the neighbours reported hearing any gunshots either. They only heard the family dog barking during the night. I'm sure I don't need to tell you, dear listener, but gunshots are, well, they're loud. Very loud, usually. So how did the family stay asleep in their beds, unmoving and unwoken by the deafening noises that exploded only a few feet away? There were no drugs in their system to keep them sleeping, so how did they continue to sleep and stay in their beds as they were being murdered? Whoever had killed the family had skulked room to room, shooting member after member of the DeFeos until one by one, all six, bar Junior, were dead. A flustered Junior explained to the police at the house that they must have been killed by a mafia hitman named Louis Fellini. He stated that Fellini had a key to their house, and that Fellini had a personal vendetta against Junior. He continued to say that two weeks before the murders, Fellini threatened the lives of his parents and siblings in a twisted way to get even with Junior. After they were informed of this, the police took Junior into custody for his own protection, fearing that Fellini may come back to finish killing the DeFeo family entirely. Once Junior was inside the police station, however, his retelling of events began to grow… sketchy. He admitted to the police that he used copious amounts of heroin and alcohol in an attempt to, and I quote, be honest and truthful with them. But serious inconsistencies arose as he continued to retell the events of the day. Police searching the home eventually found the murder weapon, and those questioning the neighbours found that they believed strongly that Junior himself had committed the crimes. After looking into his activities, they found that Junior was a gun enthusiast, and that he attempted to purchase a silencer for the rifle days before the murders. When questioned about his relationship with his family, Junior spat vitriol and hate over each and every member. You'd think that someone who just had their entire family murdered would express feelings of… loss, regret, and sadness. Not Junior. Hate is all he had in his heart for his family. Eventually, Junior's story began to unravel. 
now being detained as a suspect, not for his own well-being. The police told Junior that they just didn't believe his story, and that they'd found the murder weapon and ammunition. After a long and silent pause, Ronald DeFeo Jr. finally admitted to the murder of his mother, stepfather, and four younger siblings. He told the detectives, Once I'd started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. The trial began on October 14th, 1975, where he and his lawyer mounted an affirmative defence by insanity. On the stands, DeFeo claimed that he heard voices in the house that an entity in the house whispered to him, grim and dark whispers, that his family was plotting against him. Eventually, this entity showed itself to him. It was a monstrous figure, tall and demonic, made of black shadows and garbed in a cowl and gloves. Junior claimed that it was this entity that gifted him the weapon, and told him that he knew what he needed to do. He claims he was possessed by the dark spirits within the house, and that they drove him to kill his family in cold blood. Needless to say, the jury weren't really interested in buying what Ronald Jr. was selling. The prosecution argued that this was all a circus, and that Jr. was actually just a drunk and a drug addict who was fully aware and conscious of what horrible deeds he was doing. The jury agreed, and on November 21st, seven days later, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder, and was sentenced for 25 years to life for each. The trial's judge, Thomas Clark, declared it to be the most heinous murders committed in Suffolk County since its founding. Junior's time in prison was not a silent one, however, and until he died in 2021, he was interviewed by many journalists, investigators, and more. Over the years, he gave many different accounts of just how that night occurred. One such account blamed his mother and sister, Louise and Dawn, for the killings. Junior stated that Dawn had killed her father in an act of vengeance for one of his many violent outbursts, and, stricken with grief and anger, Louise in turn killed Dawn and her siblings. In self-defense, Junior claims that he wrestled the rifle out of her grip and killed her with it. Another account blamed Dawn chiefly, stating that he had been the one to give his sister the rifle. He states that the sister confided in him that she wished to kill their parents for putting them through such an agonizing existence and that he agreed and gave her the Marlin rifle. He told her that it was all ready for her, and that all she would need to do is pull the trigger. After Dawn had killed their parents, she went on to murder her siblings also, and Junior needed to kill her in self-defense after he returned home. There are many more accounts that Junior has given over the years, involving everything from random hitmen, friends and foes alike, obscure family members from out of town, and more. Each was labelled as lies, as a futile attempt to free himself of justice, guilt, and prison, and all his appeals for release and parole were denied. Despite his best attempts to get out of it, Ronald DeFeo Jr. stayed a prisoner at the Sullivan Correctional Facility until the 12th of March 2021, when he died of an unreleased affliction. His actions began a series of terrible events at 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, Many believe that this tainted the house, leaving a dark legacy that poisons any and all who live there. But is this the case, or was it already wrong before the murders occurred? Did DeFeo's words hold a sliver of truth? Are there dark and demonic entities that reside in Amityville? Is this how DeFeo was able to go room to room and murder his family without anyone rising to stop him? 
A terrible and frightening figure, made of darkness and shadows, handed him the rifle and demanded that he murder his family. They held them down as he stalked. No matter how hard they struggled or thrashed, they could not escape the grip of the shadow person. Bound in their beds, they could only listen as the heavy footfalls moved into their room, the crack of the lever-action rifle loading another round into the chamber, and the explosion of the gunshot as it tore into their body. Another soul claimed by the house, another prisoner held within. Then the house lay empty, a menacing presence that watched, waiting for new victims to enter and feed the horrific entities that hid within it. They didn't have to wait too long, as the Lutzes eventually moved in on December 19th, 1975. What followed is one of the worst cases of poltergeist and paranormal activity that the world has ever seen. But for that, dear listener, you'll have to wait for next week's broadcast. There's simply far too much to mention in one small broadcast, as the horrors that the Lutz family experienced were many and detailed. The end of that segment shambles us grimly onto the next, and this day's Cryptid of the Week. The ferocious, the deadly, the blood-sucking wolfman named the Rougarou. Imagine for a moment, dearest listener, that you're part of a familiar scene in Louisiana. You're out hunting in the swamps and bayous, a marshy series of lakes and rivers. It's a canvas of brown and green. It's hot, muggy, and surprisingly, given just how large and expansive the area is, it's oddly claustrophobic. But it's a refreshing step away from civilization and the troubles of modern life. Cypress trees form an often impenetrable barrier in most places, blocking out sight of your surroundings. Their leaves and Spanish moss make for a thick blanket above you, and sunlight is rare unless you're following the twisting, turning pathways of the rivers. It's the perfect environment for the animals that live there. Snakes, alligators, deer, bobcats, anything that relies on stealth and hiding in one way or another. Whether it's losing your hunter in the natural labyrinth, or stalking slowly through the water, not so much as a sound giving you away until it's too late. You've taken an airboat deep into the bayou to bag yourself something large and dangerous. You're a seasoned veteran of this place, you know what awaits you, and you know exactly what caliber to use, what equipment to bring, and what precautions to take. Hunting with a partner would be safer, but this way you don't need to coordinate or compromise. You can enjoy the silence and the disconnect for a few precious hours. The scenery blends into itself as you progress. Tree after tree, bend after bend in the river, and you begin to wonder if you're making any distance at all, or simply repeating the same space over and over again like the background of an old cartoon. Somehow, despite your expertise and training, you've become lost. Did you make a left turn and then a right, or just a right turn to start with? You stop a moment to get your bearings, and with the sun just beginning to cross the tree line, you'd better do it fast if you want to be home before dark. The map on your phone isn't working very well. The signal is spotty out here at best, and your GPS is having trouble placing what river you're at. You watch the little circular symbol turn and turn as it tries to connect, but eventually, you pocket it once more with an angry huff. As if that wasn't bad enough, it seems as if someone's beaten you here. A few feet away, resting slightly submerged on the side of the riverbank, is an alligator, and one of the largest you've ever seen. An old creature, judging on its size and the scars on its hide, its belly up and very still, so almost certainly dead. 
Curious, you hop off the boat to investigate the carcass, just before you turn around to leave the way you came. A snake, perhaps? A scuffle with another alligator? As you approach, you're only confused. The wound comes into sight, a series of deep gashes near the animal's neck. You've seen similar bites on deer that were killed by wolves and scattered before they could finish eating, but this is... this is bigger. And either this is an old kill, or there's a strangely little amount of blood around. Something about this seems... off. Maybe it's the descending sunlight. Maybe it's the carcass you can't explain. Maybe it's the choking surroundings. Maybe it's that strange musky smell. Or maybe, maybe, it's the feeling that something is watching you. You pull your rifle off your shoulder, feeling a little better with a gun in your hand, and move towards the airboat. As soon as your back is turned to the forest, however, there's a rustling in the thick bushes. You turn rapidly, putting your front and face towards the potential threat, gun raised just in case. Slow steps backwards towards the airboat, eyes locked forward. Something is indeed watching you from the dark underbrush. It's mostly covered by the thick reeds and moss, but it's there. You can see it now. Two large and bright yellow eyes stare at you, almost perfectly camouflaged. Were it not for the low sunlight, you likely wouldn't have seen it at all until it was too late. A predatory gaze. A hungry gaze. Unfortunately for you, a moment of blindness soon becomes your ruin. Your foot hits an exposed tree root as you backpedal, and the weight of your body carries you backwards into the river. Just before you hit the water behind you, you see it lunge out of the swamp. A humanoid creature, with deep brown fur riddled with moss and matted thick with blood. It's tall, nearly ten feet tall and wiry. You can see the outline of its ribs and muscle on its horrifying figure. Terrible sharp claws, jagged and black, and a wolf-like face with a maw filled with grotesque and rotten teeth, each as large as your fingers. Abject terror floods your brain as you crash into the water, your senses drowning in the murky brown and you feel the wolfman's heavy weight upon you. The painful sting as claws sink into your shoulder, and the absolute agony as terrible fangs sink into your neck. The creature doesn't bite, however. It holds you down and drinks deep of your blood. You thrash against the creature, powerless to do anything against his overwhelming strength as he drains you of your life and breath beneath the water. And soon, everything fades to black. The Rougarou is a lycanthrope cryptid that rears its ugly, wolfish head in French communities, notably in Cajun folklore. It's often seen in Louisiana, prowling the bayous as it hunts for prey, drinking the blood from any poor and unfortunate person it happens to find. It's over ten feet tall, a half-man and half-wolf with bright, reflective eyes and a thirst for blood. It's similar to a werewolf in many ways. Tall, wolf-like, fangs and talons, it has a long snout. Heightened senses similar to that of a wolf, but its intelligence and cunning remains human-like. The rest of its appearance can change depending on the specific lore or Rougarou. Some say the Rougarou has a terrible fear of frogs. Yes, frogs. And that it will burst into flames if you throw salt upon it. A strange combination for a creature that lives in the swamps, but we, we all have our quirks. The creature doesn't feast on flesh like the conventional werewolf, devouring those it hunts and leaving only bloody chunks and remains. It sustains itself by draining the blood of its victims chiefly. It's a bloodsucker, in a similar way to a vampire. Like many folk stories, the creature is often used as a social deterrent. 
Some say that the Rougarou will hunt down and viciously murder Catholics that break the rules of Lent, sucking them dry and damning their souls. If you break the rules for seven years in a row, then you will become the beast yourself. Others say it's a curse that lasts for 101 days, and that by draining the blood of others, the Rougarou passes on its deadly curse. Parents sometimes use it as a supernatural enforcer, uh, you know the sort. If you don't do as Mummy says, then the Rougarou will eat you up. The creature has been referenced many times in popular shows, movies, and books. It used to chiefly be a Louisiana cryptid, but similar to the Jersey Devil, sightings and reports of the monster have branched out across the United States. Cattle have been reportedly drained of blood and left in their pens, wide-eyed and open-mouthed in a terrifying expression. Any human corpse found with its blood drained is rumoured to have been a victim of the vampire, the chupacabra, or the rougarou. What about you, dear listener? Do you have any personal experience with this creature? Do you have any theories about what it might be or where it might come from? Or do you think this is all a bunch of swamp nonsense? Atop of that, do you have anything you want us to investigate? Do you have a request for a story, a cryptid, a mystery or crime, or a suggestion or helpful criticism? Then reach out to me at charnelfm at gmail.com. You can also follow the show's Twitter at handle at charnelfm and get in touch with me there. We've reached the end of this broadcast and the part where I bid you all adieu with a frightening fact. I'm sure that many of you listen to this on the phone, yes? Maybe on your way to or back from work. Maybe you're laying in bed right now with your eyes closed, listening to my soothing voice as a bedtime story while you gently drift off to sleep. Well, it might please you to know that the phone you're listening to likely has more than 10 times as many germs as your toilet seat, over 25,000 separate bacteria per square inch, if you want to get specific, which makes it one of the dirtiest objects we come into contact with on a daily basis. Hope you don't think about that the next time you get a phone call. Take care, everyone. The songs used in this episode are titled SCP-X5X, Mist on the Moor, and I Knew a Guy. They are made by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. His website is incomputech.com, and he makes excellent music. Give him a look and a listen.